Hello, everyone, and, and welcome to Grace. I hope you've had a just a, a rich experience already in worship, and prayer, just being together. But I uh, hope that your heart is also open to what God may speak to you today as we dive into the Word together. Before we do, I want to say a quick shout out to all the dads, all of you who are fathers. Congratulations. I believe that role is absolutely crucial. In fact, I'll even say I think it's more crucial than ever in our culture. Your words, your actions, the example you set is so powerful, not only in your immediate family, not only with your children, but but in your whole sphere of relationships. So I want to encourage you today to be strong for God. And if you're a man of faith, if you're a follower of Jesus, I encourage you more than ever to be strong for him and really live so that people will think more of Jesus because of their acquaintance with you. God bless you, all you dads. Well, Jonah chapter three is a story about second chances. A second chance for Jonah and a second chance for the people of Nineveh. In fact, I want you to know that God is a God of second chances. Now, let me be very clear about what I mean by that and what I don't mean. First of all, God's word is crystal clear that when it comes to salvation, there is no second chance after this life. Hebrews 9 gives a very sobering word. It says it's appointed unto a person once to die, and after that, the judgment. That's why Scripture has a tone of urgency to it. That's why we're very serious when we proclaim the gospel, because there are no second chances after death. Scripture says, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Why is there so much urgency in the Bible? Well, the the reason is clear, because this life is the only go-around you get when it comes to what are you gonna do with Jesus? What are you gonna do with his gospel? Are you going to open your life to him and follow him as Lord or not? So scripture on that is very clear. But, 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 when it comes to service for God, scripture is also very clear that when individuals blow it big time, God is a God of grace. In fact, what we're about to look at today from Jonah chapter three is an amazing story of Jonah being recommissioned and getting a, a second chance. And the Bible, by the way, is just filled with examples of this. Let's just highlight a few of them by way of example. Uh, think of King David. Boy, he blew it big time in his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, a man named Uriah. But God's grace forgave David. In fact, uh, he wrote two of his most popular psalms after that horrendous sinful experience, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. God was gracious with David. Or think about Simon Peter, one of the leaders of the early church. Simon Peter was privileged to write the books we call First and Second Peter in the Bible. He was also really the author 
of the gospel according to Mark. He's the one, Peter is the one who spoke that. Mark was simply the scribe, the amanuensis who wrote it down, okay? But think about Peter's failure. I mean, he said to the Lord at one point, yeah, Lord, I don't know about all these other bozos here. They're probably gonna let you down, but not me. I'm a rock, Lord. I will never let you down. And then in a moment of pressure where a little servant girl looks at him and goes, now wait a minute, wait a minute here. Aren't you one of them? Peter is a coward and he denies that he even knows the Lord. Or think of, think of, think of John Mark. Uh, he was one of the young men that was a part of the first missionary journey of Barnabas and Paul. But when the going got tough, John Mark bailed on them. He didn't stick with it and he went back home. He gave up on that journey. And so when the time came for the second missionary journey to roll around, Barnabas says, hey, Paul, why don't we invite John Mark to go with us again? And Paul says, man, what are you smoking? There is no way, no way I'm gonna take a risk on that guy again. He let us down when the going got tough. And the disagreement was so sharp between Barnabas and Paul that as far as we know, they never worked together in ministry again. And yet, toward the end of his life, the Apostle Paul, writing to his young mentee, Timothy, he said, and when you come, Timothy, bring John Mark with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. Whoa, wait a minute. How did the unhelpful one suddenly become helpful? It's because not only Barnabas, but the Lord himself gave John Mark a second chance. So I hope I, we could go on and on with examples. I hope the message is clear. Brothers and sisters, God forgives failure and sin. Is anybody happy about that today? Boy, I am. <laughs> Woo, yeah, thank you, thank you. We ought to be stoked about that. Now, let me put a caveat on that. That does not mean that when God graciously forgives us, that we always escape the earthly consequences of that. Oh, big difference. See, I could, I could go right now and say, hey, I am free, free, free. And I can jump out of a 60-story window of a tall skyscraper, free. And I'll find out a few moments later, I'm not as free as I thought I was. Because the law of gravity will teach me that I am not free from the consequences of my decision. We can say, oh, we're free to sin. Well, we are. But we're not free to escape the consequences of that. It's this law God has put in the universe called the law of sowing and reaping. So a lot of times believers get confused about that. Wait a minute, if God forgives sin, does he just wipe out all the, con not necessarily. Remember the guy David I mentioned earlier, King David? Oh, God forgave him so much. But you know what? There were earthly consequences of David's sin that plagued him and sort of uh, haunted him and nipped at his heels for the rest of his life on this earth. So, we recognize the law of sowing and reaping, but thank God we rejoice that God is a God 
of second chances. So I pray that today's message will be a huge encouragement to you, especially to those of us who know that we've blown it, who know that we've disobeyed God at different times in our lives and that God has been so gracious. I hope today, I hope today will be a day of encouragement as well as a day of challenge for all of us. So let's dive in. I want us to look first of all from Jonah chapter three at God's second commissioning of Jonah. We saw his first commission in chapter one and now comes the second commission in chapter three. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. This commissioning is very similar to the first one, but the focus here is on proclamation. His mission was to be one of proclaiming the word of God. Now, in my opinion, that's our commission too, and that commission has never been greater than today. In fact, if I were just generalizing, one of the greatest needs across the United States of America in all of the churches is for a faithful, clear proclamation of the word of God. Here's why I say that. Nothing can take the place of that. Nothing can take the place of that. We must proclaim faithfully the truth of God's word as revealed in the Bible, no matter how people respond. When Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet, received his commission, he was concerned that people were gonna reject his word. And here's what God said to him in Ezekiel 2, verse seven. You must speak my words to them whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. Ezekiel's going, wait a minute, Lord, but what if they reject the message? God's going, that's not on you. That's their responsibility. Your responsibility is simply to faithfully proclaim the word of God. And I would say quickly as a word to all of you who have any kind of teaching, mentoring, counseling, sharing role where you use words I would encourage you to be faithful in that proclamation. Whether it's to large groups of people, whether it's to one-on-one -on -one individuals, be faithful in your sharing of God's word and don't be too concerned about what people do with it. That's not on you. Leave the results to God. But now, I want us to see secondly, Jonah's reluctant obedience his reluctant obedience to this commission. Now, I'm calling it reluctant obedience because here's the deal. Jonah wasn't into this. Now, you're gonna see that. I don't wanna get spoiled next week because to me, that's the climax of the whole book. That's where we're really gonna get the, if you're wondering, what is the point of all this? What is the core message of Jonah? That's next week. And man, is it powerful. Boy, you talk about a personal message it is coming next Sunday because it all comes together in chapter four where God gets at the heart of what this thing is all about, okay? But let me just ask you, Christian, 
Have you ever gone through the motions of obedience? Boy, I have. Has God ever nudged you or communicated to you, shown you something he wants you to do, and you're like grudgingly, oh, okay, I guess I'll do it, but your heart wasn't really in it? It happens. In fact, I think it happens quite often in the Christian life. We just kind of go through the motions. Well, that's kind of where Jonah finds himself in this story. Verse three says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Let's talk about Nineveh. It was the largest city in the world at that time. It was the largest city in the Assyrian Empire. Sennacherib, one of the famous leaders, had built it up greatly. It was 250 miles north of the city of Babylon, just on the east side of the Tigris River. But, but what does it mean when it says it was this three days walk? Well, let, let me talk about that. You see, a lot of archaeology has gone on around the ancient city of Nineveh, a lot of digging, a lot of excavation. And what they've discovered is that Nineveh was not really like one city. It was really more like four cities close together that made up what we would call today a metroplex. In other words, it was really spread out a lot, okay? If you've ever been to Los Angeles, to me, Los Angeles, one of the major cities in, in the U.S., is one of the more spread out cities you'll ever see. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And it just feels like one mass of humanity. Or if you go to New York City, we know about the five boroughs. And while each of them is distinctive, they're all a part of the one city of New York City. Or maybe you've been to Dallas-Fort Worth. We say those together. It's really two cities, but we say them together. In fact, all the locals in Texas call it the Metroplex because while it is two cities, Dallas and Fort Worth, it's just one massive expanse of humanity and they feel like they're connected as one big city. So when it says it's a three days walk, here's what it probably means. It would take you about three days to go from the periphery on one side, walking all the way through to the periphery on the other side. But that's what Jonah starts out to do. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out, here's his message, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Get the picture. He's this weird Hebrew prophet. He's a foreigner. He doesn't really speak the language that well. He's got this weird accent. He's clothed in these Hebrew robes. His skin has all this discoloration from the gastric juices of the fish. And he comes with this message that's very negative. Yet 40 days, the city's going down. Can you, can you imagine somebody bringing that message to, imagine being downtown Albany and you go out maybe from your office for your lunch break and here's this weird dude out on the streets 
yelling this message, 40 days in Albany's gonna be fried. What would you think of him? You know what you'd think. You'd think, did that guy just escape from a psychiatric ward? I mean, where did he come from? I mean, this dude is a couple of fries short of a Happy Meal. I'll tell you right now. What's wrong with him? Back in the 80s, when I was in seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, a guy showed up on campus one day, and man, he was strange. I don't know where he came from. I don't know his name, but he showed up. And he, do you know what a sandwich board is? Like a sandwich board sign? You know, you put them out in front of a restaurant, out on the sidewalk, and write the menu for that day or some special. This guy was wearing a sandwich board sign, okay? His head was up to the middle. Of it. And on the front, it had a message that said, Apostate Seminary. Come back to God. On the back, it had message about repentance. That this guy was yelling, and he positioned himself right in front of the library. The library was at the geographical center of campus, and it had these stately stone columns, very high, and he would get up on the steps of the seminary library, and he would yell out this message calling us to repentance. It was funny to watch how the students responded. Campus at that time of about 2,000 seminary students. And so there were lots of people coming by that was at the center of the foot traffic. And some people snickered and laughed at him, made fun of him. Some people got angry at the guy. How dare, how dare you come here with a message like that? And they'd get in his face and challenge him. And he gave it back, you know, angrily. But you know, do you know how most people responded? I'll bet you could guess. Most people just ignored him. In fact, the last time, he stayed there for several hours, uh, or a few hours, at least three or four, and the last time I saw him, he was all alone. There wasn't a soul around him, but he was still there, still vocalizing his message, committed to calling us to repentance. But Pretty much, he was ignored. Folks, that's not what happened to Jonah. When Jonah preached this message, there was an amazing response. I want you to look at it now with me. Nineveh's radical, and I do mean radical response. Verse five. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, by the way, there's probably a lot packed into that because Jonah certainly went beyond just those few words about the fall of Nineveh. His message probably named some of their specific sins, I'll bet. I'll bet his message talked about the character of God. I'll bet his message talked about God's grace and that God was calling them to repent of these things and so on and so forth. When it says they believed God, I believe we need to understand that Jonah got a lot of content in there. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. What is sackcloth? It's this rough burlap material and it's very scratchy. And in that culture, when you put on sackcloth and when you put ashes on, it was a sign of grief or sorrow over something. For instance, if you were a wife and your husband passed away, 
Here's what you would do. You'd go get some sackcloth, the scratchy material. You'd put it on. You'd get a bowl of ashes. You'd throw them up in the air. You'd get it all in your hair and all on your face. And that sounds weird to us, but in that culture, what that widow is saying is, look, I'm in deep mourning here. I'm broken over the fact that my dear husband has passed away. I'm in sorrow. I hope you'll rally around me with comfort. And so in the Ninevites' case, their sorrow is over their sin. Sackcloth is always a symbol of repentance. Let's read on. It says, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation. He didn't say, oh, this is not just gonna be a personal thing for me. I, I wanna use my authority. I wanna use my influence here and impact the whole culture. Issued a proclamation, and it said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or fly. They're involving the animals in this. Now, this is weird. This is extreme. Do not let them taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Now, most fast in the Bible are just abstaining from food. That's what most fast are. You go a long time without food. Uh, many people have gone 40 days. Jesus went 40 days without food in the wilderness. But you can't go long without water. And so that's why there's this is a very rare and extreme example of repentance. They're not even drinking water, and that's obviously very physically dangerous. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? The king is saying this. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. It seems here that the whole city is crying out to God in prayer. One night, back in 1968, a major plane was about to land in New York City, but the pilot, when he put out the landing gear, it did not properly deploy. The wheels wouldn't go down and lock in place. He tried it over and over again, but with no success. And so he began to circle over the airport. He asked the control tower for instructions. And the ground crew immediately went into action. They responded by putting foam on the runway. Emergency vehicles moved into their proper positions. And the pilot, of the plane was instructed to land the plane as best he could. The passengers were asked to prepare themselves. They got into the, the crash position. And moments before landing, the pilot announced over the intercom, we are beginning our final descent. In accordance with international aviation codes established at Geneva, it is my obligation to inform you that if you believe in God, if you believe in God, you should commence praying. The plane then performed a belly landing 
and miraculously came to a stop with no injury to the passengers. Now, if that pilot hadn't found himself in a crisis that day, his passengers might have never known about the airline's hidden provision for prayer. But isn't that the way it goes with us? You know what I think? I think many of us have a little bit of a flat tire mentality, don't we? We cruise down the highway of life, and as long as everything is reasonably okay and everything's moving along in our lives and feeling pretty good, we don't do that much crying out to God. We're not sure we want God. But as soon as there's a blowout, wow, we turn to God. And Jonah, Jonah goes into the city and says, there's about to be a blowout. God's judgment is about to fall. Can you hear the clock ticking? Tick, tock, tick, tock. Judgment is on the way. Don't you know his heart was racing? Folks, let me remind you, I know this is brutal, but these are the people who, when they would capture a prisoner of war, would sometimes ah, literally peel a man's skin from his flesh, skin him alive, impale him on a pole, put him out in the sun to die. Jonah knew that, that there was that kind of barbarism. He must have been scared out of his mind to be bringing such an unpopular message into such a cruel culture. I, I racked my brain trying to find a modern equivalent to this. This is the best I could do. The best I could do. You may know that Kabul, Afghanistan is under the control of the Taliban today, okay? They have executed and indeed tortured thousands and thousands of people who don't agree with their rules and their guidelines. Imagine showing up, if you could get in, to Kabul, the capital city of Afghanistan and the largest city. Imagine going into Kabul today. You, you're going into Kabul knowing who's in control, knowing what they believe, and you cry out a message of condemnation and judgment on them, would you be a little scared? I think this was more scary for Jonah than even spending time in the fish. In fact, people get all bent out of shape about the fish story. I think the greatest miracle in the book of Jonah is not the fish. I believe the greatest miracle is the repentance of the Ninevites. From the top to the bottom, from the educated to the unschooled, from the servant to the master, the whole city and all of its surrounding area goes into repentance. It's obviously a work of God. I believe that in some ways, Jonah's own repentance in chapter two paved the way for the Ninevites' repentance in chapter three. And by the way, that's often the case. It's often true that when leaders humble themselves and repent, it often leads others to do the same. I don't know if you've ever read anything about D.L. Moody. He was the most effective evangelist in the 19th century. 
both in Europe and in America, in the U.S. I hope you read about him someday. I hope you get a biography. I hope you go someday over to Northfield, Massachusetts. It's a fairly short drive from here. And look at the birth house of D.L. Moody. It's still there. You can see it. Some of the schools that he started over there. Amazing impact. D.L. Moody, one day he came home from a trip and his young son had trampled down the flower garden and destroyed the flower. Now, Moody loved flowers. He just loved flowers. And his son had just absolutely destroyed the flower garden. Moody ripped him apart with words. He scolded him angrily. He said horrible things to him and he sent him to his room in anger. But shortly afterward, his son heard steps. Now, Moody weighed 300 pounds. You could hear him when he was walking up those wooden steps. And his son thought, oh no, what now? But Moody came into his son's room and he said, son, you, you did wrong, but I also did wrong. I am so sorry. I lost my temper. I said horrible things to you, and I said them in anger. I let my anger get out of control, and I made you the object of my anger. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. And D.L. Moody, the most respected evangelist in the world at that time is humble enough to apologize to his son. The son later said in his testimony that God used that incident to cause him to open his own life to Jesus Christ because he saw something of God in his earthly father. Throughout the history of revivals, that's how it works. You will see they were often sparked or accelerated when leaders confess sin in their lives. Over and over again in the history of revivals, it was the leaders who led the way in confession. They were honest and they encouraged others to do the same. Hey, you want revival in your family? Pray, Lord, send revival and begin it with me. Do you want your small group or your ministry to come alive? Say, Lord, here I am on my knees. Would you bring revival to me? Do you want your campus to experience an awakening and a touch by God? Get down on your knees and draw a circle and say, God, bring revival in this circle. Start it with me. Yeah, Jonah was a reluctant preacher. His heart wasn't into this, but his message, wow. It was one of the most powerful sermons ever preached. And verse 10 tells what, tells what happened. It said, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Folks, I want it, I want it to echo from the mountaintops. I want it to be heard in the valleys and in every street corner across the capital district and beyond. God is a God of mercy and grace. Praise be to his name. The hymn writer said, Oh my sin, the 
The bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. As I wrap up today, I wanna get really, really personal here for a moment. I'm gonna ask you a question that I'll end with in just a few moments. I want to contrast and compare two journeys that were made. I read them again just this week. One of them is Jonah's journey on the ship that we've seen in Jonah's, in the book called Jonah. The other one is in Acts 27. It's the journey that the apostle Paul made. It's interesting to see how different these journeys really were. For instance, when Jonah came on board, he appeared to be free, but he was really a slave to sin because he was running from God's will. When Paul came on board the ship in Acts 27, he appeared to be bound. In fact, he had chains on him, on his wrists and ankles, but he was being taken, by the way, to Rome to stand before Caesar in judgment. But he was really free because he was in the center of God's will for him. Jonah, in his journey, was asleep, totally indifferent to the people around him, unconcerned. Acts 27 shows that Paul had tremendous concern. In fact, his whole focus was not on himself, but on the people that were on board. Jonah's environment influenced him. Paul influenced his environment. Paul was seeking God in prayer about the outcome of this journey. It's kind of funny. Jonah actually has to be reminded to pray by a pagan ship captain. In Jonah, they had to virtually pull a testimony out of Jonah by pummeling him with questions. Who are you? What is your country? Where do you come from? And finally he admitted, yeah, I'm I'm the guy of faith. I believe in the Lord God, yeah. Paul was just continually, freely witnessing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jonah is reproached and confronted by the people. Paul became the leader of the people, all 276 of them. Jonah told the sailors to throw him overboard. Paul urged everyone to stay on board in order to be saved. Bottom line, Jonah's presence was pretty much a curse to everyone around him, whereas Paul's presence was a comfort and a source of hope to everyone around him. Why all these contrasts? How could, my goodness, how could two voyages be so dramatically different? The answer is kind of simple. Because one was a journey of disobedience, trying to get as far from the will of God as he could. The other one was a journey of obedience, living in the very center of God's will. And and my question as we close is simply this. Which ship are you on? Are you on a ship today? Are you in a voyage right now of kind of disobedience, doing your own thing? Oh, you may look free to the casual observer, but you're really in bondage to something. Or are you on that other ship, truly free 
because you're in the center of God's will. Father, I, I pray today for all of us that we would do serious examination right now because next week, we know as we look at chapter four, you're gonna put a spotlight, I mean a spotlight on our heart. And that spotlight's gonna expose who we really are and what we're really about. But as for today, Lord, would you graciously allow us to examine ourselves and see where we are right now. Are we on a ship of disobedience or are we on a very different ship, a very different voyage living for you day by day? Father, for those who would be honest enough to say, you know what, I guess I'm on the wrong boat. I guess if I'm being honest, I gotta acknowledge I'm just not on the right ship right now. Oh God, may they cry out to you and find that your grace is truly amazing and that you are a God of second chances. In Jesus' name, amen.